You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Grant, I have a joke for you. Yes, please. Ask me if I'm a tree. Are you a tree? No. Is this more anti-wits jokes? Yes. The anti-jokes? <laughs> the German anti-jokes. Okay. <laughs> Yes, this is an example of an anti-joke. We talked about these uh, a couple of weeks ago, which opened the floodgates. Oh, and yes. we got all Email, of these phone jokes. calls, Facebook group, right? everywhere. And that one about the tree came from Aaron in Indianapolis, but we got a ton of these. Did you enjoy them? Yes, I did, actually. Oh, okay. yeah. People's enthusiasm is pretty clear. Particularly the ones that they've been holding on to for a very long time and they can't wait to share. Well, yes, exactly. We got another one from Ray Carlberg in San Diego. And he was talking about the fact that when he heard us talking about these things, he was instantly transported back to childhood. He said, I could clearly remember this exchange with my sister. She would have been in high school and I was in fifth or sixth grade. And the gist of the joke is, what's the difference between a duck? <laughs> And the answer is a pencil, because a vest has no sleeves. <laughs> and, and Ray writes, it was amazing to have this memory come back so clearly after all these years, decades really. What strikes me most is remembering the instant when I switched from being the whiny, impatient victim, if you will, to the anticipation of perpetrating this new, completely off-the-wall kind of joke-telling on my friends. And I think that's mm-hmm. some of the joy of these things, is that you get that the joke is completely stupid, and then the next thing you do is think of the next person you want to tell that Yeah, joke. many things are like that. Practical jokes are like that too, right? Right, right. Who's next? Who's, yeah, okay. Oh, I've got flour on my face and in my hair, but can't wait to do this to somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. So I may have another anti-wits. Just one or 50? Later in the show, I, I, may, I may bring up another one or two. Well, you know, we talk about everything related to language. Jokes are part of it. Words and books and speaking and writing and things that someone said and half memories and full memories and anything related to communication. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. And go to our website at waywardradio.org. Hi there. You have a way with words. Hi, Martha. Uh, This is George from Elgin, Illinois. Hey, George. Welcome to the show. I'd be interested in a comment uh, from you folks on a conversation I had with my sister about six months ago. We were talking about Mexican restaurants in the area, and I commented to her that my wife and I are real fond of one in particular because of the great guacamole they have. And she got a funny look on her face, and I said, okay, what's going on? She said, it's guacamole. You don't say guacamole unless you're in Mexico. And I said, what? I said, you've got to be kidding I thought maybe this was a joke and I was waiting for the punchline, but uh, it turned out she was dead serious. And uh, it's been bugging me ever since. My daughter-in-law is from Mexico, so the next day I called her up. and She said, I've never heard of guacamole, so I figured I'd call the experts. No, your sister is the one who said it's supposed to be pronounced guacamole? Yes. <laughs> Where did she get that idea? Yeah, I want to know. I have no idea. I asked her, I said... Uh, I've never heard that. I mean, I'm not a kid. I'm 67 years old. I said, I've never heard anyone say guacamole. I said, I know there's mole sauce. Is that mole as well? Or <laughs> Nobody would eat it from? if it was called mole oh. sauce. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It sounds like whack-a-mole. Yeah. Which <laughs> is something completely different. Did she explain her reasoning why she thought it should be pronounced guacamole? No, she just apparently said she knows that in Mexico it's guacamole and anywhere else in this country it's guacamole. And 
So I got to get to the bottom of it. It's just kind of festering with me. Oh, boy. So I could see we've actually talked about this on the show and got a huge, wonderful response from people where we talked about intentionally mispronouncing words. But clearly she's not intentionally mispronouncing this in a way to be funny. She's intentionally mispronouncing because she thinks she's over applying logic. She's trying to well, over apply me. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's it. Maybe she just wants to one up her brother. But she's right. wrong. She's wrong. Let's just get that well, out of the way. You. Her pronunciation is incorrect. Now, are Americans pronouncing the words exactly the word exactly as Mexicans do? No, but it's close. You know, it's about as close as you, it's kind of semi-anglicized. And we don't fully anglicize foreign words when we borrow them. I think of things like coup d'état, where we retain a, a fairly decent approximation of the, of the original French. Some words we do fully anglicize, but. Um, this word has been with us for centuries, and it's in every dictionary that you check, even going back into the Spanish language dictionaries, the pronunciation is very akin to guacamole. Mm-hmm. And and the English dictionaries, yeah. every single English dictionary. Yeah. I mean, what dictionary is she using? Oh, I don't, I don't know if she used a dictionary or not, but she was just adamant that I was pronouncing it incorrectly, and I, I just could not believe what I was hearing, because I've never heard anyone except her say guacamole. I wonder if she says hyperbole instead of hyperbole. <laughs> Could be. I don't know. But it looks like I may have won this one. No, you did, clearly so, yeah. and thoroughly. And so she owes you Mexican food every weekend for the rest of your life. That's right. Maybe she's just pulling your leg really hard. Yeah, is she a well, deep joker? I, I thought about that, but I don't think so. <laughs> I'm going to give her a chance to redeem herself. My birthday's next week. I'm going to make her take me to a Mexican restaurant for some guacamole. And make her order go. it using that, that That's pronunciation. Right. That would be great. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it, and I'm going to chalk one up for me. Okay. Thanks, George. Let us know, by the way, if she insists. And if she wants to call with her point of view, yeah. you give her our number, all right? That's a great idea. I will suggest that if I get too much argument. <laughs> there you go. Buen provecho. <laughs> take care now. Thank you much. Okay. Bye. Bye. You know, I didn't want to bring it up, but we should talk about the etymology of guacamole. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Go for it. Well, it comes from Nahuatl. And, yep. And the the Aztecs word for avocado, Mm -hmm. which means literally testicle fruit. Nice. So, and the mole is sauce, so it's testicle fruit sauce. Nice. And did you know that historically there has been guacamole with something different in Cuba? It was no. a chopped up avocado with vinegar and a few spices and eaten more like a salad and mm. not like a sauce. Oh, no kidding. Interesting, right? That sounds delicious. It does actually. sound really good, doesn't it? <laughs> Road trip. Food words. 877-929-9673. I learned a new term at a conference for judges and lawyers where I was a speaker, and that term is elbow clerk. Elbow clerk. So this is a clerk who works directly in the judge's chambers. It's kind of like imagine them at the elbow of the judge. like Kind of like the dog's body who's always present for whatever needs to be done. (laughs) But elbow clerk, cool one, right? I like that. And now I'm going to get all the lawyers saying, well, actually, there's a little more nuance. Here's a 40-page paper that I wrote. And I'm like, okay, I'll I'll read that. Send that to me right away. And meanwhile, there are probably kids all over the country who are saying, well, I want to be an elbow clerk when (laughs) I grow up. Isn't it funny? Because you could easily misunderstand what an elbow clerk is, right? I've counted all the elbows. We're full up. we got 100% (laughs) of all elbows accounted for. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Nan. I'm calling from Vancouver, Washington. 
Welcome to the show. What's going on? Thank you. At my house, my husband and I are always coming up with, now where did that word come from? Or why do we say that thing? Mm -hmm. And it's really great. I have a list inside my phone that I keep uh, a list of words for away with words to call you and ask you (laughs) about. So do we. (laughs) And the one that came up is the coast is clear. And we're just like, well, why do we say that? And I, I think that what we mean when we say the coast is clear is you can sneak by now without being seen mm-hmm. or, or whoever you don't want to see you won't see you at that moment. Mm-hmm. It's safe, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Where did you run into it this time? Watching some heist movie or something? <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know. We say it ourselves okay. all the time. Like, uh, uh, when you're trying to sneak, sneak cookies out past the kids? Up the kids oh, or yeah, okay. That sort of thing. Coast is clear, Martha. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, it's a term that's been around for hundreds of years nice. and literally, apparently, has to do with the coast of a uh, country, of like a land. Like where the mass. land meets water. Yeah, where the land meets uh-huh. water. And we're not really sure if it had to do with uh, pirates and smugglers who were talking about the coast being clear so that they could come onto the land or if it had to do with watching out for ships that were coming in, you know, invaders. I see. Uh-huh. So in one way, oh. a, a smuggler or a pirate wants to make sure not to run up against the Navy or mm-hmm. military of some kind, right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but also They don't be- want to be observed. Mm-hmm. Being sure. clear of the coast also just means being out of danger from running aground or running up against a submerged rocks and that kind of thing, right? It could be uh, that, If, if yeah. you're headed outward. Yeah, yeah, yeah or, or yeah, yeah if you're headed outward and there's no one there to, mm-hmm. uh, to impede you. Coast yeah. is clear, okay. Yeah, there's hmm. a similar expression in Spanish, no hay moros en la costa. There which, are no moors on the coast. Exactly, and that's been around oh. for Probably longer since the 1200s, than that. right? Right, at, at least, yeah. Wow. Um, and and you still hear that today, or hay moros en la costa, like like somebody comes to a party and you're alerting your friend that there are people oh. that you don't want to oh, run, run, run into. Watching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, huh. yeah. Given the history oh, of Spain, that's so interesting. Wars. Yeah. Oh well, that's that's great, and I will share that with my husband. Thank you so very much for your phone call. Yeah, call us about that list that you have. We'd love to hear more oh, questions. Oh, I got, I got a list. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, you guys, have a good day. Take, Take care. care, Nan. Hi to your husband. Okay. Bye. I will. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, if you have a list of words that you'd like to ask us about, call us and ask us about one. 877-929-9673 or send it an email to words at waywardradio.org. We're forever being asked about the practice of starting a sentence with the word so. Right. People are saying, I'm hearing it more and more. Mm -hmm. And this prompted Ian from Nashville to call us and leave us a voicemail. He said, I have a really prominent example that comes to mind for me in my experience as a church-going person. I hear this a ton as a lead-in to prayers, especially public prayers, whether it's a worship leader or a pastor is praying in front of a group. And it often does have this sort of, we're wrapping this up or I'm recapping what has been said already. But to start a prayer with, so God, we blah, blah, blah from there— I just hear that all the time, and I just thought I'd throw that bit of data into the Mm -hmm. sentence, initial so conversation. I thought that was really interesting, that it's it's used to start prayers in church. Mm -hmm. The term that I 
always heard when I was growing up uh, in a Southern Baptist church was just. Just when you're informally praying, you would say, just, just, Lord Jesus, just. Just, just give us, just help yeah, us. Just, just, just thank, help yeah. us, and we just ask. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was really, in, just yeah, thought that yeah, was really so interesting. Yeah, so it's doing that discourse job of yes. providing the continuation of thought, or right. as he was saying, the summary of thought, right? Yes. And that's the question that we get, is when it comes up in interviews where, the interviewer asks a question, mm-hmm. and the interviewee responds with a sentence beginning with, so right. the reason that we did X is, you know, and, and so, and that is a particular mm-hmm. self that has flagged people's attention repeatedly over yes. the last 10 years. Yes, and I can I can see concluding a sermon mm-hmm. or concluding a little... Interesting. Uh, yeah, discussion That's with, a nice so, addition to the conversation. I know, right? If you want to know more about sentence initial so, since we haven't fully talked about here, there are at least two separate times we've talked about on the show before, mm-hmm. and you can find those on our website at waywardradio.org. This radio show is about language examined through family, history, and culture. Stay with us. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett, and we're joined by our quiz guy, John Chinesky. Hi, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. Hey, John. What's up, dude? Hi. Well, you know, I was talking about names with a friend of mine the other day. As a person with an uncommon last name, I'm always looking for some way to make it into an actual word so that people will be familiar with it. But some people are lucky. Their names are already words. For example, if I asked you, is the comedian who was one of the three amigos vertically challenged? You could interpret that as, is Martin Short? Uh Uh-huh. Right? Right. So I'll give you a clue, which you can paraphrase into a short question that will include the name of a famous person. Bear in mind, some of these are phonetic, so they may not be spelled the same. So question-style answers a la Jeopardy, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, later there are statement ones. We'll do some question ones first. Here we go. Is the singer-songwriter of Shake It Off able to move quickly? (laughs) Shake it off. Um, Is Taylor Swift. Is Taylor Swift, (laughs) yes. I imagine she's could move a little bit. Uh, number, let's see, here's the next one. Has the author of The Importance of Being Earnest lost control of himself? <laughs> Is Oscar, <laughs> Oscar Wilde. Wilde. Yes. <laughs> now, does the star of Top Gun sail about in a boat for fun? Does Tom <laughs> Cruise. Does Tom Cruise or does <laughs> he Cruise? <laughs> Imagine sometimes he does. <laughs> Is an English theoretical physicist going around trying to sell trinkets? What? An English theoretical <laughs> physicist going is, around selling trinkets. Is Stephen yeah. Hawking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How much money can you make? Just talking about <laughs> physics. Did the man who preceded James Buchanan as president perforate earlobes or noses so as to insert jewelry? <laughs> is Franklin Pierce. <laughs> Does yes, Franklin did, Pierce. <laughs> did Franklin Pierce. Did, did, we, yeah, he's not around We can anymore. assume he, yeah, he's not around anymore. And what are we yeah. inserting, inserting in the holes? Jewelry or what? <laughs> jewelry. You can, you can okay. insert whatever with you like. Presidential it's presidential seal. Can you imagine a president right with like an ear gauge? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, the actor who starred in Body Heat and Kiss of the Spider Woman, is, is he Okay. <laughs> Does William hurt? Is he all right? William, give us a call. (laughs) Speaking of actors, when Gladiator won Best Picture, did its star openly celebrate? Did Russell Russell Crowe. Yes, he probably did because he also won Best Actor for that. So he probably, (laughs) very likely, he fine achievement. Yeah. 
tell me the truth. That Argentinian footballer who plays for uh, FC Barcelona, <laughs> is, he, uh, is he a bit of a slob? Is he messy? Is he messy? Yes, is Lionel messy? Now, the following answers will not be questions. They'll be statements, okay, or okay. sentences. What does the gravelly-voiced singer-songwriter of Downtown Train and Jersey Girl do when he's online at Trader Joe's? Tom, Tom Waits. Tom Waits. <laughs> I think he's and a Whole Foods kind of guy, but yeah. Whole Fo- yeah, probably Whole Foods. <laughs> Will the current Prime Minister of the UK attend the G8 summit this year? Theresa May. May. <laughs> she may. Yeah, sure. Theresa May. Very good. Okay, and that's it for now, guys. You were Aww. fantastic. Nicely done. Good Thank job. You very that much. was fun. Thank fun you. Fun with puns. Grant can bear it. Yes. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. So we don't just do silly word quizzes. We talk about everything related to the language, how we speak, write, and how we do them well. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. And talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello. Welcome to Away With Words. Hi. This is Gabby. I'm calling from San Diego. Hi, Gabby. Welcome to the show. I had a uh, quick question about the word smitten. I'm not familiar with the history or origin of the word and... Um, I had it as a vanity plate. So I lived in New Hampshire. I guess it's the highest per capita number of, um, you know, self-designed license plates in the U.S. And I wasn't sure if you could provide me with any extra insight on that word. I thought it sounded kind of contemporary, but I think it's kind of an older word. Is smitten, that right? Smitten as an S-M-I-T-T-E-N? Correct. Cool. And, and Gabby, what do you like about the word smitten? I just kind of like the sound of it. Uh It sounds kind of like kitten or, I don't know, it sounds almost um, jargon-like in that, you know, we abbreviate a lot of words ending in I-N-G to I'm running late or, you know, other words that would normally end in I-N-G. But obviously this is not one of those words. Um, It just sounds kind of contemporary, but I know that it has this, you know, older history to it. Yeah, yeah, much older. It's it's a very, very old word. Um, And it's simply the past participle of the verb to smite. Interesting. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, which is a word you see all the time in uh, in the King James Bible, you know, smite your enemies. If you're smitten, then you're you're struck in the same way that smiting somebody is is striking them or beating them. So you're figuratively struck. I wouldn't have thought it would be uh, sort of such a aggressive uh, origin. That's interesting. Yeah, well, we have a lot of words in English that are really positive words that have to do with, with beating or striking. Something is striking. Somebody's strikingly beautiful. Or, or don't or, that beat all. Don't or, that beat all. Or, or the term larapin, which you'll hear in parts of the West, that means really good and comes from a, a, a Dutch word that means to beat or strike, like that's larapin good pie. Ah. Yeah, but like bite and bitten, smite and smitten. Is smite <laughs> as attractive to you as smitten? Not nearly, not nearly. Um, I, yeah, I usually tend to have a negative connotation with the word to smite, you know, to mm-hmm. smite someone. Um, but smitten just seems cute and kind of ephemeral and, um, yeah, almost like you have a crush on someone, mm-hmm. you know, not yeah. um, to be fully in love with someone, but yeah, I just thought it was kind of more of a lighthearted word, but it turns out it's, it's not quite that. Yeah, originally it wasn't quite that, but for hundreds of years, smitten has meant to be struck with passion or emotion. And, and what I like about the word is that it just, it sounds so complete to me. If you're smitten, you are just completely in love with, enamored with whatever you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so well, I see awesome. it as a really positive word, too. 
So if we okay. see you driving around San Diego, and will there be a license plate that has smitten on it? I tried to, uh, I just registered my plate about six months ago, and it was not available, at least not in the traditional spelling. So ah. I'm contemplating maybe getting a license plate that's abbreviated in some way mm-hmm. with letters slightly different, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of a traditionalist and would prefer to just use the full smitten. So maybe mm-hmm. someone will eventually not use it and I'll be able to use it again in the future. But yeah. yeah good question. Sounds like there's someone out there who shares your feelings. Yeah, Who's definitely. Smitten definitely. with the word smitten. <laughs> Thanks a lot for calling. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. from Eloise Stripling in San Antonio, Texas, who has taught at the Defense Language Institute English Language Center at Lackland Air Force Base. And she said one of her favorite parts about that job has been hearing different idioms from people from around the world who come there to study. And she said that one of her favorites is one that's sort of equivalent to, in English, we talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Mm -hmm. But she learned from one of her Spanish-speaking students uh, the expression, el conejo gritando orejon, which means the rabbit hollering big ears. <laughs> Isn't that great? Just, That's great, I just yeah. picture this rabbit just, just yelling, big oh, ears, you've got big, big ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> El conejo gritando orejon. I love it. Hit us up on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Debbie Fraggle. Hi, Debbie. Where are you calling us from? Marquette, Michigan. Welcome to the show, Debbie. What's on your mind? Well, I'm wondering why I get in trouble for my daughters. For saying where are you at, and you or, want to know why you get in trouble? Oh, they yeah, they <laughs> always <laughs> are correcting me, and I still do it. But uh, they tell me it's redundant. It's the way everybody talks. I mean, I understand what they're saying, but it's the way we say it. Uh-huh. So I want to know where you're at. Uh-huh. So you're saying where are you at, or where are you at, or both? Both. I notice though they say something that I think is redundant. Do you want to come with? Mm-hmm. They, they missed something there. So Let's focus on where you at for a second. So where are you at? So what's happening? You're on the phone with them and trying to figure out um, whether or not they're going to make it to your lunch date or something like that? Yeah, how old are they? Um, 21, 24, 18. Okay. And um, so, yes, yeah, so there would be noise in the background. And I'll say, well, where are you at? Right, mm-hmm. right. There's a lot to say on this. Um, I do want to agree with you on one part of this. Lots of people say this. This is incredibly colloquial. It's widespread across the United States. It's far more common in some parts of the country than others, such as uh, the South and the Great Lakes region, but it exists everywhere. Another thing to say about this, um, we are divided on this, whether or not some people will permit the the words to come out of their mouths in that order and whether or not they, they won't. There was a survey done in 2003, and they asked people, would you say, where are you at to mean, where are you? And 34% said yes, 36% said no, and the rest said, I can use it in certain contexts about asking for progress, like progress towards a destination or progress towards a goal. But they wouldn't use it to mean, where are you at this particular moment? Like, where physically in the world do you stand or where do you exist? And so Mm -hmm. that kind of shows you right there, like a three-way division of people who won't use it, who will use it, and people who make kind of this fine distinction on when Mm -hmm. they won't use it. Um, So that said, just know that, like, there's no one perfect answer for this, at least in terms of common idiomatic 
American English. I think the problem that people have with this sometimes is that it ends in a preposition. Do your daughters mm-hmm. ever bring that up? They always do. Yeah, and yes. that's that's an old bugaboo that's a fake rule that should never oh. exist in English and should never be taught. The other complaint oh. that people have is when you say, where are you at, you're leaving out the verb. Right, but but the, her daughter's complaint is that is that it's excessive, that it's a pleonasm, that it that it right. you don't need the at there. Well, you do, you do. The thing is, where like, are you? So here's the thing about the at. Here's the thing: it is actually doing a job. The at can actually make the question more specific. For example, if I call you on the phone and I say, "Where are you?" You might say, "I'm on the train." But if I say, where are you at? You're like, I'm in Houston. You get more, I'm on the train in Houston. You might get more specific. Does that make sense? I never thought about that. Is that the way you use it? No, both ways, really. I do. And um, I'm thinking sometimes it's for a location. I want them to pinpoint a location for me. But I would say something, let's just say this. The hammer, I'm looking in the garage for the hammer. Mm -hmm. I say, well, where's the hammer at? I think you're falling in this nice case here where sometimes when you say where are you at, you actually are seeking clarity. And adding the at does give a more specific question that solicits more specific answers. And this is something that linguists have studied, and it's well chronicled, and there's a very clear division. When we look at when we analyze conversation and text, we do see that, that that's actually happening. However, there are other cases where that at is redundant and you do not need it. But to separate them out as a speaker may be difficult to do, so you're defaulting to including the at, and that's just your mode of speech. Yeah. I would say Thank that you. if you were if you were trying to speak formal English uh, in a court or uh, to um, an elected official or to um, you know uh, head of your church or something like that, maybe saying where you at would be taken as too informal, and you need to think about saying where are you. Well, isn't that interesting? Because I notice when I'm in formal a formal setting like that, I don't use it. Oh. So you do My drop brain it. just goes there not to use it. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, oh, it is. Really I've noticed that myself. So you're already huh. you're already understanding the circumstances when it's okay and when it's not okay. That said, um, you know, this is messy. Um, I would say your daughters shouldn't correct you. That's my opinion on this. And I think if it bothers you that they do correct you, you can either ask them to stop or you can just stop saying where you're at. Thank you. All right. Take care. And you know what? If they want to push back, we welcome their call, too. Yeah. Hi to your daughter. Oh, I'm sure they will. Okay. (laughs) They are, and I'm glad they do. All right. Take care now. (laughs) Well, you know where we are. Bye. Bye. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) I guess the summary is to simply say that it's uneducated speech does not come close to approaching the complexity of that particular sentence. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. There's right? a lot more to be said, and that at does do a job in some cases. And I've most never people, thought about that, honestly. Most people don't have the linguistic background to right. determine whether or not it's doing uh-huh. a job, so maybe it's best to avoid saying, where are you at? Uh-huh. But it does sometimes do a job. Do you have a family dispute about a word or phrase? Call us about it, 877-929-9673, or send it an email to words at waywardradio.org. conversation we had a few episodes ago about fudging your age using different forms of... Yeah, jokey stuff, because so you don't have to admit the real number. Right, right. And we got another example of that from Doug Clark here in San Diego, who writes, On my last big birthday, I told people I had turned 21. 
in Celsius. (laughs) (laughs) What about Kelvin? (laughs) (laughs) I really don't mind being 70, but I couldn't resist. And and 70 Fahrenheit is pretty close to 21 in Celsius. I like that. (laughs) 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Brian from Dallas calling. Hello, Brian. Welcome. Hi, Brian. What's up? Um, I work in theater, and uh, we've got tons of, uh, you know, jargon-specific to working in our uh, in, in my field. Uh, but just the other day, I was walking down the street with a friend of mine, and I mentioned that uh, a show that we were about to do is a two-hander. And uh, I, she didn't know what that meant, and I said, oh, it's, a, it's just a play with two people in it. Uh, at which point, uh, she asked, why is it called that? And I did not have an answer. So um, I was curious if you guys knew. Um, I, we've done, like, you know, a lot of one-person shows, but I never call that a one-hander. Um, mm-hmm. So that's my question. So a two-hander, it's... Tell me if I'm wrong. It's not just two people, but it's two people who are kind of diametrically opposed, right? There's an element of uh, separation or distance between them, like they're very different characters or they're at very different places in their lives or something like that. Isn't there often absolutely. like... Yeah, there's like a black and whiteness about it. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, you know, the, the, the principal conflict revolves around how those people interact. Mm-hmm. Right. Is it going to be reconciliation or war all the way down, right? Yeah, yeah. So the the hand part of that is the interesting part. We know the two obviously just means two people. Um, the hand part refers to people in theater. As far back as the 1500s, a hand was somebody who worked in theater, either on the stage or, or writing the works or behind the scenes as part of the crew. It's very similar to seafaring, you know, where you say all hands on deck. It's that same kind of hand. And the reason we use hand to mean a whole person is something called metonymy in linguistics, where the smaller part of something stands in for the larger whole. So a hand being a whole person is a great example of metonymy. We do this in a bunch of other, how many faces were there, right? Or we mean how many people were there. We don't actually mean did they take off their face and put it in the chair. But Yeah, let's do a nose count. Yeah, let's do a nose count. Let's do a head count. That sort of thing. Yeah. We also have three-hander, which is a little different, but it's still three people operating primarily alone on the stage together in a variety of different different ways. So what's river dance? Forty-hander? <laughs> yeah. A 40-hander, yeah. A stomper? <laughs> Isn't it the variety language for a dance show? A stomper, a hoofer. Maybe that's it. There you go. Yeah, that clears up that, that whole hand issue, and I guess it's very similar to, like, a stage hand. Yeah, exactly. You know? oh, there you go. Yeah, it's um, the same yeah. hand, yeah. Yeah. So Which the, we've kind of just moved for, uh, you know, that to crew members as opposed to actors. Uh, a hand would be a, a person working on the stage as opposed to an actor who's working on a stage but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. It's as simple as that. A two-hander, by the way, if you can catch it done really well between primo actors, is a real special treat because you're so immersed in these um, stellar performances. There's something, I don't know what it is. It's kind of like sitting in a cafe next to lovers or something where they're having their, <laughs> they're hashing it all out. It's just the, one of the, the thrilling experiences of theater, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It's two people who are very exposed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the honesty really and the well. rawness of having to get up there and be alone and not having having very few crutches. Yeah. Brian, Excellent. thank you so much for your call. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
This is a show about language. We talk about all aspects of language. It's not just word origins, but it's about disputes that you had on usage and spelling and pronunciation. But it's also about language in terms of language that you love, language that you found and you keep forever and you shared it with other people because it's perfect and it says something about you and what you like about the world. Share that with us, 877-929-9673, or tell us an email to words at waywardradio.org. Why we say what we say. Stick around for more of Away With Words. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. I had somebody ask me last week about the term to go on and on like Tennyson's brook. Do you know this expression? Mm -mm. It means to talk and talk and talk, just go on incessantly. And so I did some digging around, and it's a reference to a wonderful poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called The Brook. The I'd brook. love to share it with yes, you. Yes, please. Um, I had to look up a couple of words in it. Coot, which is a kind of bird, mm -hmm. and hern, which is like a heron. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I really like this poem is because of the sound of it. Think about a brook. I come from haunts of coot and hern, I make a sudden sally, and sparkle out among the fern to bicker down a valley. By thirty hills I hurry down, or slip between the ridges, by twenty thorps a little town, and half a hundred bridges, till last by Philip's farm I flow to join the brimming river, for men may come and men may go, but I go on forever." I chatter over stony ways in little sharps and trebles. I bubble into eddying bays. I babble on the pebbles. With many a curve my banks I fret by many a field and fallow and many a fairy foreland set with willow weed and mallow. I chatter, chatter as I flow to join the brimming river for men may come and men may go, but I go on forever." I wind about and in and out, with here a blossom sailing, and here and there a lusty trout, and here and there a grayling, and here and there a foamy flake upon me as I travel, with many a silvery water break above the golden gravel, and draw them all along and flow to join the brimming river, for men may come and men may go, but I go on forever." I steal by lawns and grassy plots. I slide by hazel covers. I move the sweet forget-me-nots that grow for happy lovers. I slip, I slide, I gloom, I glance among my skimming swallows. I make the netted sunbeam dance against my sandy shallows. I murmur under moon and stars in brambly wildernesses. I linger by my shingly bars. I loiter round my cresses. And out again I curve and flow to join the brimming river. For men may come and men may go, but I go on forever. There's so many things I love about that poem, Grant, and it's given us the phrase to go on and on like Tennyson's Brook. I have never heard that phrase before. I love that poem because of the sound. To me, it just sounds like brooks I've hiked alongside. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that it's sort of a metaphor for life. You know, it starts out real bubbly and, and full of energy, and toward the end, it's kind of swirly and, you know, hmm. like, like a life winding down. Now, you defined a couple words related to birds at the beginning, but there mm -hmm. were two more that leapt out at me. 
that Thorpe? we might Thorpe, right, which means village or mm-hmm. hamlet, mm-hmm. and then grayling, which is a kind of fish. Mm-hmm. Yes. Go online and read it for yourself, The Brook by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And in the meantime, call us with your language questions, 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Lindsay calling from Coronado, California. Hiya, Lindsay. Welcome to the show. What's up? What can we do for you? Yeah, I had a question come up. I was in a group Facebook chat with some friends, and I was trying to track what kind of plans we had made. Um, So I used the expression, I've lost the bubble. We have young children, so some of the women in the group thought I was referring to playing with bubbles, um, but I just thought it was a common phrase um, that I've lost the bubble. You know, what's going on? What's the plan? Hmm. Any military people in the in, in your background? I'm I'm a veteran, and some of the people in the group are veterans or spouses of uh, a Navy. So I thought it might be a Navy terminology because there are you know uh, inclinometers and other sort of old nautical equipment that have bubbles in them. That's right. That's exactly right. Did you serve on a submarine? No, I was on a, a surface ship. But yeah, the inclinometer, which is the name for this uh, meter on submarines that shows the angle at which they're diving, right? And then there are, sim- mm-hmm. there are similar devices, similar gauges on airplanes that show whether or not they're flying at the horizon, flying level, basically. And in both of these kinds of transport, you need these so that you don't crash. And it turns out if you go back to at least the 1950s, probably earlier, you will find to um, lose the bubble to mean, you know, I've lost control of the the ship. And then later, even now, it's extrapolated. And when you lose the bubble, generally, it means you lose the overall picture of a situation. Like aircraft control people, um, they need to kind of keep all this data and all of these planes Mm -hmm. and everything that's happened in their minds. And if they can't do that, then they've lost kind of this overall picture. And you will find this come up in management books. You'll find this come up in um, military theory books where they talk about a commander's need to stay on the bubble or to keep the bubble. So is it a literal bubble, like like a carpenter's level? Yeah, yeah. think of a carpenter's level, like a spirit level that's got the bubble that floats back and forth in a liquid. And if it's between these two guidelines, then that means that you're level. It's it's kind of like that. I mean, obviously, they're more sophisticated than that on the more sophisticated machines, but generally like that. That makes sense. So you lost the bubble. Yeah. Hmm, Okay. But you're saying your friends didn't catch that reference or they didn't understand what you were saying yeah and and i meant it more in the loss of situational awareness sense Mm -hmm. but then i just didn't know where it originated and i'm maybe it's something that was passed down because i have you know more veterans in my family or Mm -hmm. yeah that would explain it just something i was used to but i do see it show up in business theory books and business management Mm -hmm. courses and that sort of thing i do find it popping up outside the military now, but it definitely started with aircraft and then not long after with submarines and then became kind of a figurative use um, uh, over the following decades. Okay. So about that? Thank you. Yeah. How about that, Lindsay? Your your, uh, instincts were right on. All right. (laughs) Thanks so much for your call. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 So one of these books, Trapped in the Net by Gene Rochland, He says, those who man the combat operations centers of U.S. Navy ships use the term having the bubble to indicate that they have been able to construct and maintain the cognitive map that allows them to integrate such diverse inputs as combat status, information flows from sensors and remote observations, and real-time status from um, various weapons. I mean, we're talking like that kind of 
mental presence of being in the zone mm-hmm. so that you don't even have to consciously think about it. Mm-hmm. You just know. Mm-hmm. Keeping that bubble right yeah, between. A, another yeah. thing they talk about, it reminds me very much of writing, like writing books and your need to get in that zone. And they talk about um, the overlap between two different kinds of managers in order so that the bubble can be passed from manager to manager. And when you write books or you write something complicated, you know how hard it is to get back into the writing later after you've put it aside? You need that, that like, ramp-up time. Oh, yeah. It reminds if, me if an ve- email interrupts you yeah. or, or you, you put it away for a yeah. few weeks. That, yeah. that, to me, what they're mm-hmm. describing here in this larger situational awareness that very much feels like losing the bubble when mm. your attention is, yeah, the attention bubble is popped, so uh-huh. to speak. Uh-huh. It, I should say, by the way, there are many other terms related to being on the bubble, but they're not this one. And there's one, some from sports and uh, how teams are ranked or being a, in a precarious situation or precarious ranking. But those are ah. a different kind of bubble related to more like actually being perched on top of a bubble of Something of, very of fragile. Soapy. Yeah, something yeah. fragile, yeah. Very interesting. Well, that that's a military term that should see wider use, I think. Yeah, it probably will fall into those lists of most hated jargon, though, after think, a while. Oh, yeah, yeah, It's yeah, useful yeah. now, but after a while, it will just yeah. seem irritating. Was there a term you were talking about with your friends and they didn't know what it meant? Give us a call about it, 877-929-9673, or send it an email to words at waywardradio.org. <laughs> Here's a bit of Aussie slang I ran across recently. Okay. 50K south of whoop whoop. That mean uh, boondocks? Yes. 50K south of whoop whoop. Is yes. whoop whoop actually a place? I think it's a fictitious place. Uh, okay, there's not a real yeah. whoop whoop in Australia. Yeah. I would like to live in a place called whoop whoop. I know, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so he's uh, if he lives uh, 50K south of whoop whoop, it means he's really far away. That's really okay. far away. We'll take your questions and calls and comments, 877-929-9673. Hello, welcome to Way With Words. Hello. Hi, who's this? This is Patricia. I'm calling from Crescent City, California. Hi, Patricia. Redwood Coast. Oh, nice. Pretty stuff over yeah. there, right? It's beautiful. Well, I was um, looking at my Facebook um, a while back, and saw that one of my friends had posted that her little boy who was teething was being a fuss bucket. And I thought, wait, that's not the right word. It's supposed to be fuss budget, because my mom had always said fuss budget. And then I thought, well, but fuss bucket makes a lot more sense. So that's when I decided to call you guys and find out the true story. Ah, interesting. And what did you understand fuss bucket to mean? Well, that he was being really fussy. I guess that he had a bucket full of fuss with him. Yeah, so you thought that that made more sense than fuss budget, which you'd heard all your life. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting because actually they both make a whole lot of sense because budget is an old word that means a purse or a pouch. Or or in Appalachia, a budget is a bundle or a package. And it comes from an old French word that means like a leather bag. So a fuss budget is somebody that's just a big container that's spilling over with fussiness. Bag full of fuss. (laughs) Bag full of fuss. (laughs) So I can see where a fuss bucket would be 
a reasonable uh, variation of that, not only because it sounds the same, but because it's the same idea. And there have been also, um, around the turn of the 20th century, there were terms like fuss pot and fuss box. Mm-hmm. Again, something, you know, like a walking container of fussiness. Now, fuss budget dates back to at least as early as 1870, which most dictionaries won't tell you. They have a much later date. So it's at least that early. But there's an older expression, too, uh, open one's budget. Did you run across this, Martha? Sure, yeah. And that dates to the mm-hmm. 1500s and it means to speak your piece or say, right. your, say what's on your mind. Right. There are newspapers that have the commercial name budget, the the Salem budget or something like that. And it's, and it's the idea, again, of containing something or opening your budget is unlocking your word hoard, as they used to say. It's speaking your piece, mm-hmm. as you say. But the fuss budget is the actual term. Fuss bucket is incredibly rare. And it's I think, rare. I think it's just a misspeak on... Or maybe mislearned. Yeah, I would say mislearned. But it makes sense. Yeah. And it sounds really similar. Yeah. How's that? Well, well, thank you. That clarifies it a lot. And maybe in the distant future, will he be hearing best bucket more because budget doesn't make sense to us anymore? That's right. We've lost that etymological connection. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you so much for your call, Patricia. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys for talking to me. Have a great day. Okay. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. The final thing I wanted to say on this, this is one of the few words, fuss budget, that I remember where I learned it. Oh, yeah? Charles Schultz, Peanuts, right? Oh, yeah? Yeah. One character called, I think it was Lucy being called the fuss budget. Oh, that's right. See, I remember it because I was always called the fuss budget. Oh, were you? I mean, my mother <laughs> loved calling me Little Miss Fuss Budget. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Lucy was, was known as a fuss Lucy budget. Lucy was as a fuss budget. Yeah, very yeah. particular and uh, opinionated, right? <laughs> opinionated, for sure. <laughs> and that doggone football. Email words at waywardradio.org. Talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. And join us on our Facebook group where there's thousands of people just like you talking about language. Because I am such a nerd, Grant, Mm -hmm. I sent a text yesterday with the word clinomania in it. To whom? <laughs> I actually did. To a friend of mine who was having a really hard time getting out of bed. I bet your personal dictionary on your phone had a fun time with that word. <laughs> <laughs> it went through just fine, Clinomania? Is clinomania. This, is this the mania for the comic Robert Klein? This is people who really love his work? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it comes from the Klino part comes from um, ancient words that have to do with with leaning or lying down. Oh, sure, down. like incline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or recline. recline. Yeah, exactly. Recline. So clinomania is a, a fancy word for not being able to get out of bed. Okay. Yeah. So you like lying down? A mania for lying down. Yes, exactly. And and the other word for that is dysania, which um, comes from words that mean you know just just bad trouble, bad grief, bad, bad grief. Oh yeah. yeah. Clinomania. Yeah. But I, I like that. Now I have a word for, I guess the other word in my case is pre-caffeinated. <laughs> pre-caffeinated. <laughs> you need one of those like Rube Goldberg setups that just drips it in your I mouth do. while you're still in bed. <laughs> I do. A, I don't care a pull, what. A pull chain and it kind of dumps <laughs> on you like, a, like snow from the roof. Exactly. I don't care what the caffeine <laughs> delivery system is just as long as it gets in there. Train, you need a dog to train <laughs> to bring you. <laughs> Here's the Believe beans. Believe me, I tried. A little pause. Push it up into your mouth. <laughs> Yep, a good cure for clinomania. 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Hey, this is Austin. I'm from Owensboro, Kentucky. How are you guys doing? 
Doing all right, well. you? All right, all right. How are things going in western Kentucky there? Uh, nice sunny day. Pretty relaxing, really, right now. Okay. What can we help with? Uh, my friend, he bought him a car, and I was asking him how how his car is and everything, and he told me, he goes, well, Bob, I think I bought a lemon, and it kind of threw me off when he was referring his car to a lemon there, so I was kind of hoping you guys could tell me where that come from and exactly about it there on that question. Austin, what kind of car was it? It was just a van. He bought him a little minivan. Mm-hmm. So he bought a minivan, and it's not operating like he wants it to. Right. He called it a lemon. There's an old meaning of lemon from the 1860s that meant a sourpuss or somebody who was of a bad disposition. And that's the first use that we can find in the etymological world of language meaning something negative. And it's not long after that lemon starts to be used repeatedly to refer to a person who's a, who is foolish or disappointing. Right after that, it starts to be used for something that it is a disappointment, such as a machine that is broke or a promise that was broken or something that doesn't go or operate as intended. And it's not long after that when that narrows down a little bit and we find lemon being specifically used for an automobile that doesn't run as it's supposed to. Okay. And so it's this really nice progression that we can see in the written record over the decades of it moving just to referring to a sourpuss, to somebody who's foolish, to a foolish decision, to a disappointing event, to something that's broken, to a car that doesn't operate like it's supposed to. All right. That's awesome. You, or how far back to say that word? Well, the, the sourpuss meaning of it goes back to the 1860s. Okay. Wow. Well, that's pretty neat, guys. Yeah, and there's the same idea in German, too. Zitrone means, uh, means a lemon, and they okay. use that to refer to a car that, you know, leaves a bitter taste in your mouth, basically, which sounds like is what happened to your friend. Yeah, right, yeah. And the, the automobile use of it um, goes back to at least the 1920s, probably older. That's awesome, guys. Really but, appreciate it. But it often refers to, it's funny, in the, in the written record, lemon is often a kind of a scam by the car dealer where... The unsuspecting customer buys a car that is broken and the dealer knows that it's broken but doesn't tell them. Whereas I know that in modern usage, we often say a lemon is just a car that doesn't run well or a car that habitually doesn't run well. Like it continues to have problems. So, Austin, what do you think your friend's going to do? I guess he's just going to drive it till it falls apart. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Please please send our sympathies to him. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. Right. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's awesome. Take care. Bye, Bye-bye. Austin. See ya. Give us a call about anything related to language or slang or jargon or where a thing comes from or why you say it or what you think other people should say. 877-929-9673. Or tell us all about it in an email to words at waywardradio.org. Want more Away With Words? Listen to years of past episodes at waywardradio.org or find the show in any podcast app or on iTunes. Our toll-free line is always open, so leave us a message at 877-929-9673 and we'll take a listen. We love to get your messages at words at waywardradio.org or hit us up on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D and look for us on Facebook. This program would not be possible without you. 
Grant and I are out to change the way we listen and think about language, and you're making it happen. Thanks also to senior producer Stephanie Levine, director and editor Tim Felton, director Colin Tedeschi, and production assistant Emma Kelman in San Diego. In New York, we thank quiz guide John Chinesky and that master of keeping it real, Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc. From the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. So long. Bye-bye.